Well, here we are, after 35 podcasts, and finally, we get to that little matter of the so-called princes in the tower. It's at this point that I say, well, folks, thank you for listening, and now it's time for me to go. But no, having got this far, of course, I have to see it through. And you know, I reckon that's exactly what Richard III said to himself in the summer of 1483. So, let's not pussyfoot about. For what it's worth, as I see it, the death, or I suppose conceivably the disappearance of the princes, lies at the door of Richard III. Now, I know that there are those who just don't want to believe it. But the arguments for anyone else being ultimately responsible are very weak. And for the most part, they stem from a firm belief that it couldn't possibly have been Richard. Well, my answer to that view is who knows what any man is capable of doing when he's under the most severe pressure. For me, Richard remains the most likely suspect in a murder that will never be solved. Everything I've said about Richard so far is completely consistent with a man who would go to great lengths to avoid allowing his core interests to be compromised. Advocates of Richard tend to compare him a lot with his father, Richard, Duke of York. And I would agree that he shared several traits of character with his father. In particular, like the Duke of York, he convinced himself of the absolute rightness of his cause. But as we have seen with his father, and we will see with the son, he was less successful at convincing others of that right. Now, I don't believe that Richard set out from York in April with the idea of killing his nephews. But each step he took towards the throne also took him closer to a decision about the fate of the boys. It's perfectly possible that he believed such action would not be necessary, that such would be the popular groundswell of support for his kingship, that the boys would simply be relegated to young men of no political consequence, perhaps given positions at court to keep them on side and under close scrutiny, but largely no threat to Richard. That is quite possible, but unfortunately for all concerned, it didn't quite work out that way. And if Richard possessed an ounce of political common sense, he must have realised from the start that there might be a problem further down the line with his nephews. But here's the difficulty. Like his father, he deluded himself into believing he was a popular choice as king. His ability to delude himself was gargantuan. His brother Edward, for all his many faults, had been a pretty popular king. I don't mean with the vast majority of common folk, most of whom never saw him, never knew him, and probably cared little about him. But amongst the men who counted, the gentry and minor nobles, who basically administered the entire country, and the merchant community who paid for it, Edward had ticked a lot of the right boxes, including providing two healthy male heirs. With such influential people, Edward was popular. Those folk wanted, above all, 
stability, and eventually Edward IV gave it to them. Richard, of course, understood that. He had lived through it, after all, and he thought that as Edward's loyal brother he could offer the same stability, business as usual, a far better option than a boy king. Well, he was wrong, badly wrong. He should perhaps have listened more closely to the experienced Hastings and Stanley rather than the pompous Buckingham and the rapacious Howard. In a way, you can understand Richard's growing optimism during June and July, because everything he tried came off. But still, the warning signs were there. Many wondered about the reason for Hastings' death, and few at court could have taken seriously the allegation that Hastings was plotting with the Queen against Richard. The idea that the discovery of the Prince's illegitimacy just happened to occur when it did fooled no one. A lot of the discussion on this matter can only be conjecture. It has to be because we only know one thing for certain about the fate of the princes. Yes, just one thing. They disappeared from view. That much is certain. What is uncertain is everything else. When, how and why. We all have our pet theories, but expounding them does not help, so I'm not going to. If you want to know what I suspect, read my fiction. But there is no place for that here. They disappeared from view in the summer of 1483, and the few contemporary sources, bless their cotton socks, are not very clear about when. It could have been any time between June and September. If it was early on, the suspicion must be that Richard took action before or just after his coronation on the 6th of July. If he acted later, then he might have been persuaded to do so by the groundswell of opposition in the south, including, quite possibly, an attempt to free the princes at the end of July. Now you might think that because there appeared to be such an attempt at that time, then the princes must still have been alive at that point. But not necessarily since their own servants had been dismissed, and basically no one outside the Tower of London seemed to know whether they were alive or dead. Of course, we could argue about this forever and get nowhere. So let's just go with that single fact. The princes disappeared. And this is the crucial thing. It was not known at the time what had happened to them. Richard said nothing about it, and his silence was deafening. Those who had benefited from Edward IV's rule, wanted to know, not that surprisingly, I think, what had happened to his sons. The silence left by Richard was filled by plenty of others. Woodville supporters were up for a bit of stirring, but the Queen clearly did not know her son's fate, or she would have made damn sure that everyone else knew about it. But, some will say, might the villain of the piece not have been someone else? Some have suggested the Duke of Buckingham. Well, if you have been listening for a while, you'll know that my opinion of Buckingham is pretty clear. He was both ineffectual and vacillating. In fact, it is hard to imagine anyone less capable of organising, let alone carrying out, a secret and well-planned assassination. Good grief, he couldn't even manage his own clandestine escape 
in November 1483. As a master of crime, he should be well down the list of suspects. Others, too, have been thrown under the bus in a desperate attempt to exonerate Richard. Margaret Beaufort, Henry Tudor, and so on. But the endless arguments about Richard's guilt or innocence rather miss the point, like so much of the frenetic discussion about this period. Because even before foul play was suspected, many had their doubts about Richard. So in some respects, it matters little now, as it mattered little then, whether Richard was guilty of killing his nephews or not. What did matter was that enough men of substance were incensed by the events of the summer of 1483 as a whole, and the possibility, unproven of course, that the sons of Edward IV were dead. There were rumblings of discontent quite early on from the very classes that Richard assumed would support him. Of course, many of those folk did nothing, preferring, in the light of bitter past experience, to see where events took them. After all, if a prominent man like Hastings could be killed, then what could lesser men do? But others wanted action, and very likely it was a distraught and embittered dowager queen, Elizabeth Woodville, who fanned the flames. Put yourself in her shoes. A mother trapped with her daughters in sanctuary, not knowing the fate of her two youngest sons, but certainly aware of the fate of her brother, Earl Rivers, and an older son, Richard Grey both executed. I think, if I were her, I might be a little bitter round about then, and I would fear the worst. But Elizabeth Woodville's was not the only hand at work in the summer of 1483. The other key player was Margaret Beaufort, Countess of Richmond, and wife of Lord Thomas Stanley. My goodness, Margaret Beaufort! If it wasn't enough, that she had a very difficult life indeed. She has been repeatedly vilified and eviscerated by generations of historians, fiction writers and virtually all advocates of Richard III. Get a grip, people! So much rubbish is spouted about this woman, it beggars belief at times. But more of that later when I've had a lie down. My point is, there were several people who influenced opinion and Margaret was one. Another was the Bishop of Ely, John Morton, who was among those arrested when Hastings was executed and was entrusted to the care of the Duke of Buckingham. Some will tell you that Elizabeth Woodville and Margaret Beaufort between them engendered a revolt against Richard. Well, quite honestly, that's a load of old cobblers. If there had been no groundswell of opposition to Richard, those two ladies did not have the influence, let alone the popularity, to generate it. They did facilitate opposition, but they did not create it out of nothing. Who then were these opponents of Richard in the South? They were not dissidents. These were not desperate, powerless men in the last chance saloon. They were the haves, not the have-nots. The very men that Richard wanted to carry on doing their work in the counties and boroughs of England. But so many were hostile to his rule that we cannot ignore it. The very fact that responsible gentlemen, with everything to lose, were prepared to support a man like Henry Tudor, 
tells us that Richard's coup was deeply unpopular. I mean, who on earth was Henry Tudor? No one had a clue, yet they were prepared to support him against Edward IV's own brother. Henry could have been a village idiot for all they knew, yet they preferred him to the tried and tested Richard. It seems unbelievable, but it's what happened. Out of the chaos of 1483, it is one of the few clear outcomes of which we can be certain. But why did it happen? Throughout my analysis of this crisis, I have tried to explain the motives that lay behind the sometimes extreme actions that Richard took. The prime motive, I believe, was self-preservation. Though he seemed to be a very powerful man with vast land holdings and influence, I have shown that his lands would depend on the new king. But what influence would he retain with his powerful northern rivals, Northumberland and Stanley, if many of his lands were stripped from him? None at all. They would happily capitalise upon his weakness. His position was in fact not very strong at all. In fact, it was very fragile indeed. He had few reliable allies, and the opposition to him, from many in the ruling classes, bears this out. I mean, if you have to execute your chief supporter, then your position must be pretty dire. This was the one thing Richard saw clearly in 1483. And what happened afterwards proved him absolutely and tragically correct. In the southern counties and the Midlands, Support for Richard was lukewarm at best. But though it is often suggested that opinion hostile to Richard was confined to the southern counties where the October Rebellion would soon break out, let us not forget that the power base of Lord Thomas Stanley, released by Gloucester on good behaviour, remember, was in the northwest. The Percy Earl of Northumberland, too, had always been a rival of Richard rather than an ally. He coexisted with Richard when it was in his interest to do so and because Edward IV insisted that he did. But Edward IV was dead and all bets were off. In 1483 Northumberland waited to see how events would play out but it was certainly not in his interest to see most of the old Neville lands remain in the hands of one man or family. We would do well to keep in mind that it was not the men of the South that destroyed Richard two years later, but those of the North. For as G.R.R. Martin might have put it, the North remembered.